I know most of y'all here, but not everyone, so I'll introduce myself since I haven't uh, taught up here before. I'm Caleb Helms. Um, my wife is Hope. We have four kids. Um, a year ago, we adopted two kids from Costa Rica, brought them home just about a year ago. It was November 8th of last year. Uh, we were in the adoption process for three years prior to that, and uh, we learned that God taught us a lot over the course of the year and um, the three years that we were in process. And I'd like to share some of what we've learned today. Um, it's timely because today is, uh, as no November 10th, it's Orphan Sunday. And um, in addition to that, November is Adoption Aware Awareness Month. So it's really timely to be speaking about the topic today. And I'm grateful to the elders for having the opportunity to speak about it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this time that we can meet together. I pray that there would be uh, clarity, and I pray that um, you would open hearts, and um, thank you for your word and what you teach us. I pray that um, you would teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I noticed, just a quick note here, um, I noticed that I dropped off the numbers in the outline. So point number one is the introduction. Um, and then going on from there, uh, the, the main highlighted or the larger letters are the next bullet point. I'll try to call attention to those as we go, go through them. So the introduction. Uh, a couple years, maybe three years ago, Joe Oliver taught about three lessons on adoption. And his focus was on the doctrine behind adoption. Um, my lesson today will mostly be on the practical aspects of adoption. So you can think of it as orthodoxy is what he taught. I'll be teaching orthopraxy. Uh, however, adoption is interwoven into the fabric of the salvation story, so there will be some overlap. I'll be talking about some doctrine as well. One thing that Joe quoted, which I appreciated as well, uh, was the following. For everything that, Jesus, that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, Everything that is distinctively Christian, as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name of God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. And J.I. Packer said that in the book, Knowing God. I think the point here is that we should try hard to understand adoption, both spiritual and family adoption. Russell Moore is another Christian leader that has spoken with clarity and passion on the topic of adoption. He says in his book, Adopted for Life, adoption would become a priority in our churches if our churches saw themselves, uh, uh, saw, themselves saw our brotherhood and sisterhood in the church itself rather than in our fleshly identities. Is this how we view our relationships within the body of Christ? Do we view each other primarily as brothers and sisters? I know that I try, but I frequently fail. It's easy to view our relationships in human terms, and it's correspondingly easy to forget about orphan care or to not make it a priority in our churches. It's so easy to be pro-life or pro-adoption or foster care, but it's much harder to act on these beliefs. As Pastor Dan has said, we are educated well beyond our obedience. Sometimes to follow the commands of Jesus, we have to welcome the brokenness of, our, of the world into our homes quite literally. Uh, point B, now on the outline. 
Um, something I studied in going through this uh, was James 1.27. So if you want to turn there, uh, there I'll, I'll read a couple of passages from, from James. So James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I'd like to acknowledge here the portion on caring for widows in, the, in this verse and recognize that it's just as much a part of God's word as the other part, but due to a lack of time in Sunday school and my own personal experience with orphan care, I, w I don't plan to spend time on this. Um, Calvary does have an unofficial widows ministry, and you can reach out to Russ Dar or one of the other elders. Uh, he's involved in the widows ministry, so if you're interested in serving there, that's a contact point. So in this verse, religion that is pure and undefiled, religion is the, in Greek is the word threskeia. It means worship as expressed in ritual acts, religion. And I think this is important because it's worship that takes action. Another word that I looked up is to visit. It's the Greek word episkeptome. Don't quote me on the pronunciation. Uh, I, it means I look upon, visit, or look out. And um, Thayer's Greek lexicon uh, describes it this way. It means to look upon in order to help or benefit. It's equivalent to look after, have a care for, or provide for from God. The term to visit is also significant because it's used in many other passages of Scripture that talk about action. So in Ruth 1.6, and we're not going to turn there, um, it talks about um, the Israelites were starving, and God visited them with food. Um, in Luke 7.16, um, a widow's son died, and it talks about Jesus visiting the widow and resurrecting her son. One passage that I would like to turn to, and you can keep your, passage, your, your um, thumb in the James passage, um, is Matthew 25. If you want to turn to Matthew 25. And this is the passage when Jesus is talking about separating the sheep from the goats when he comes to judge the world. I'll start in verse 31 and go to verse 40. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. There's the word. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The word again. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So I think we see from that passage that the, vi the term visit is an active, it's an active participation. Um, 
and, and in, in this case, an active participation in orphan care and widow, caring for widows. And since we're on the topic of action in response to God's call for us, um, I'd, al I'd also like to turn to James 2, 14 through 26. So this is where you uh, would have kept your thumb. Starting in verse 14, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, it is, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I don't know about you, but I can't read that passage without being convicted by the Spirit to take action backed by faith. Abraham's faith took action so much that he's called a friend of God. Rahab the prostitute was the only one saved in Jericho and her family when the city was devoted to destruction because her faith in God was backed by the action of saving Israelite spies. You see, on one hand, someone with a title that seems almost unattainable, friend of God, and another who was the sole survivor in one of many cities that were totally destroyed when the Israelites took possession of their inheritance. Rahab even became a part of Israel as a result of her faith. You can look that up in Joshua 6.25. James points to these examples to say that you too can be part of the faithful who obey God by taking action backed by faith and are blessed as a result. It can be easy in retrospect to think that these decisions that they made were the obvious choice, but I think it can be helpful to try to view the situation from the eyes of the people in the story while it was happening. Rahab had no way of knowing that the Israelites would conquer her people, or that the spies would honor their pledge of safety to her, or that her people wouldn't find out her treachery and kill her for it. Instead, she had faith that God would protect her, even before she really knew him. And that's one of the significant things about the heroes of the faith. They did really difficult things by trusting in God, in a God that they were still learning about. I think we can learn from and emulate these examples. Point C on your outline. and I, I'm just going to touch briefly on this, but it's something that Dan has been talking about, and so I wanted to tie it into that. Uh, the topic of hospitality and the Great Commission. Pastor Dan has been preaching recently on the biblical commands to show hospitality. Following these commands give non-family members a chance to come into the home environment where a lot of love is shown 
and see Christians operating in their native environment in a manner of speaking. It can be encouraging to see Christian love in a home, and adoption and foster care is an, an application of hospitality. It's bringing outsiders into your home, and um, in this case, permanently, to become a part of your family. And sometimes the Great Commission can be followed by bringing unbelievers into your home and witnessing to them there. Number two, the plight of orphans and the need. I'm going to get into some st statistics here, but I first want to provide some quick explanations. One of my goals in this talk is to expand your view by shedding light on, on um, how big the problem is of caring for unwanted, unwanted children versus the resources or families that are mobilizing to meet this need. The discrepancy is eye-popping, and I think it's important for Christians to be aware of it. So a few, a few clarification items. Many children who are institutionalized are technically orphans, but it's not the way we generally think about orphans where both parents have died. Uh, in some cases, one of the parents is out of the picture and, one of the, and the other is in prison. In other cases, the parents are drug users and don't care for their children, or they simply don't care for their children. In some situations, the parents, through an act of bravery, realize they are unable to care for their child. This usually happens at birth, and they put up their child for adoption. Other times, parental ties are severed by the government due to physical or sexual abuse, either by, and this abuse can happen either by the parents or by families or family or friends that the parents do not protect the children from. So while many of these children are are technically called orphans, it means something different than what we usually think of when we hear the term. And they still need to be cared for, and if it's not, us, it's not, if it's not done by families, it's going to be done by the state. Institutionalized is a term that can refer to children either being placed in foster care or in an orphanage. And here, the, here are a couple blanks in your outline. So um, institutionalized means children that are being placed in foster care or in an orphanage. In the US, foster care is the most common institution for unwanted or uncared for children. We also have group homes, which is basically an orphanage for children who can't be placed in a foster home. In most of the rest of the world, orphanages are the most common. Now getting into some of the statistics, I'm gonna take this in two sections, first in the world, and then I'm going to take it home and or take it closer to home in Tarrant County. So this is where some of your blanks are. The number of institutionalized children worldwide, eight to ten million. And I'd like to point out here too that there are tens of millions of children on the streets begging for for resources in Calcutta, or in the brothels of Kuala Lumpur. There are tens of millions of children not included in in this statistic. The next, uh, next number, 220,000, is the approximate number of adoptions worldwide that occur each year between parents and children of the same nationality. So these would be do domestic adoptions within the country. I'll touch briefly on international adoptions later, but they're, the number is much smaller. Age 14 to 18 is the general age uh, age range of, of children who become unadoptable and or must leave their orphanage. It's known as aging out. 
the daily number, this is another blank, the daily number of orphaned children who reach an age declared by their country as too old to be adopted is 38,000 every day. And this includes children who are on the street. The percentage of girls who reach an age at which they are sent out of the care of an orphanage and enter a life of sex trafficking. You think it's 25%, 50%? It's 60%. Most of the girls that go out, that age out, enter into a life of prostitution or sex trafficking. The next blank, the percentage of children who reach an age at which they are sent out of the care of the orphanage and commit suicide before they even reach age 18, 10 to 15%. The percentage of boys who reach an age at which they are sent out of the care of the orphanage and live a life of crime and or are arrested, 70%. These are high statistics. Millions of, of, of children um, enter a, a downward, downward spiral when they leave um, institutions. My source for these, by the way, is Lifeline Children's Services. It's possible to extrapolate from the above numbers some sad conclusions. On a prorated basis, by January 6th of each year, six days into the year, all of the children who are adopted for the entire year within the country have matched the number of children who age out. And international adoptions bring much fewer kids into a family. According to the U.S. Department of State, in 2018, only 4,059 children were adopted from other countries within the U.S. And the U.S. is one of the leading countries in the world when it comes to adopting internationally. Further, on the above problem of unwanted children, 1.3 million to 2 million children commit suicide before they reach age 18 every year. Millions of girls enter a life of sex trafficking, and millions of boys start a life of crime every year. There are tens of millions of orphans worldwide, and there's a great need for Christian families. Orphans have a much harder time acclimating to the world because they don't have a family to provide feedback on their actions and to provide a safe and loving environment. Bringing this closer to home, in Tarrant County, and there's another blank here, uh, the approximate number of children in the foster care system are six, is 1,600. And I think this one corresponds to the final blank 400 is the approximate number of children who have been relinquished and are ready for adoption in Tarrant County. So these are children that can be adopted at any time that a family files paperwork for them. In the U.S., children aging out of the foster care system with no family has become such an epidemic that the prison systems of America base their future population needs on the number of kids who phase out of foster care. This is, this is astonishing to me, that, that prisons forecast their future needs on, adopt, or on foster care and, and children who phase out of the foster care system. It kind of reminds me that this is, this is such, a, uh, such a problem for, for the children who, fa- who phase out or who age out of the foster care system. In the category of criminality, 
23 to 24-year-olds who aged out of foster care are seven times more likely to have ever been committed of a crime than their same-aged peers in the general population. In the category of mental health, foster care alumni are more than three times as likely to be institutionalized for mental health reasons, are more than twice as likely to report that the, their most recent hospital, excuse me, hospitalization was for mental health concerns, and are nearly twice as likely to receive emotional counseling, and are more than twice as likely to require substance abuse treatment than the peers of their general population. In the category of teen pregnancy, teens who age out of foster care are 2.4 times more likely to be the biological parent of at least one child by age 19 than the general population. Continuing the next cycle of poverty and abuse, children who are born to teen mothers are more likely to experience abuse and neglect that result in a placement in the foster care system. In the category of homelessness, young adults who age out of foster care are more than six times as likely to go without a permanent residence for a week or longer than the general, general population of young adults. So where does this leave us? We live in a broken and sad world that is stained by sin, and the sheer volume of looking at this one problem alone is overwhelming. It seems in our human strength we can do so little compared to the need. I encourage you to not fall into despair, or conversely, fall into the trap of some kind of savior mentality, and I'll talk about this more later. These are children just like us. Their brokenness and ultimate need cannot be healed apart from God. And just like us, they desperately need the hope and healing of the gospel. That's the next blank. They need the hope and healing of the gospel. And coming up on the next blank as well, our call is to faithfully administer and live out the gospel of Christ and leave the harvest to him. There's a song that I've taken comfort in when I think about the struggles of this world and the hardships and the pain that so many people go through. It's Jesus, I, My Cross Have Taken by Henry Francis Light. I'm skipping a few of the verses to get to some of the more poignant ones, at least um, to me. So I think this is starting on verse 3 or something. Man may trouble and distress me, twill but drive me to thy breast. Life with trials hard may press me, heaven will bring me sweeter rest. O, oh, tis not in grief to harm me, while thy love is left to me. O, oh, twere not in joy to charm me, were that joy unmixed with thee. Go then, earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn, and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure, with thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee, Abba, Father, I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather, all must work for good for me. Soul then know thy full salvation, rise o'er sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station, something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee, think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee, child of heaven, canst thou repine? I've had a couple of family members ask me, what does repine mean? So just to keep us all on the same page, it means to fret or complain. So when you read the last 
couple of verses of the, of, or lines of that verse. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, can you really complain? There's so much to be grateful for because of our bounty in Christ. This is one of my favorite songs because it takes me from the, the introduction of, of trials and pain in the song to welcoming it. In thy service, pain is pleasure. To look to see God as a father smiling down on us. And then the call to trust at the end. Can you really complain after meditating on these thoughts? Although, also, if these numbers about orphans make you want to take action, praise the Lord. I'll get into some, of, some practical ideas for how you can be involved at the end. Point number three in your outline. The goal of adoption and orphan care. Faithfulness. The goal is faithfulness and sharing the hope of the gospel. We're ultimately not responsible for the result. We can't control the result. We can be faithful and we can share the gospel. With all of this hardship of orphan care, I started asking even, even before we brought the kids home, what will make all these trials and suffering worth it? Is it that our kids will be saved into God's family, or just that the kids will at a minimum be functioning and contributing members to society, or even that we'll be able to control bad behaviors? I believe that God is in control of salvation and really all outcomes, and that has been a huge comfort to me. Because of this, my answer to that question is simply that it will be worth it so long as I am faithful to God. I will try my best with God's help to provide them with a godly example in my own life, to share the gospel with them, to teach them life skills, and to love them no matter what. But there, since their salvation is outside my control, I have to realize that God requires of me, all, all he requires of me is personal faithfulness, um, which includes Christian leadership of my family. I think it's easy to have the mindset that we have to see fruit from our adopted or foster children for the adoption or foster care to be worth it. But thinking through what God actually requires has been incredibly freeing to me. And I don't have to wait to see the outcome to know that what I'm doing is under the will of God. I hope that some people who have hung back from adopting or other orphan care because of these hardships will weigh this question similarly. When you hear the plight of orphans, another temptation that I've had to resist and continue to fight is to have a God complex about orphans. It's easy, it's, it's a desire to control the outcome, and the attitude is that I can save the child that I adopt or foster or otherwise care for because I'm a Christian and I can provide a Christian home for the child to grow up in. Furthermore, we think that these children want to get out of their predicament and come live in a loving family, even though many actually don't want that or they have a misconception of it. This God complex is an easy temptation to fall into because of at least two big reasons. First of all, we are called by God to care for orphans. And second, we are called to witness to people. Sometimes we can think, and I think it's a, a twisting of the commands, but we can think that these commands mean that we are responsible for the outcome when we absolutely are not. Anyone who has been at Calvary for very long has heard Pastor Dan talk about this balance that we are called to witness to a lost world, but that God provides the fruit. 
I think there are other passages of Scripture that most of us have heard many times that can encourage this God-complex mindset when it comes to raising a family. We've probably heard many times from Psalm 127 that children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior, and blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. We also see in the pastoral epistles such as 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the qualifications for elders and deacons that the husband should manage his own household well. Let me be very clear here that these are great passages, which, would be an, which should be an obvious statement because they come from the Bible. But it's possible to view these passages, even if it's subconsciously, as saying that we are responsible for our children's salvation or that we can prevent extreme behavioral problems if we raise them the right way. When it comes to salvation, though, and all outcomes, verses such as uh, Romans 8, 29 through 30 identify God as the architect and the one who acts to save us. Let's turn there because we'll be in Romans 8 a little bit um, in addition to this. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So while those... um, So while we should lead our children and witness to our children and also care for orphans, God is the one who saves them, not us. And while we can train them up in the way they should go, we are not guaranteed that they will follow this path. In many trials I've gone through, this passage from Romans has helped, the following passage from Romans has helped me to focus, um, to take my focus off the difficulties and look forward to the future glory of fellowship with God in heaven. And so this is Romans chapter 8 as well, starting in verse 18 and going to verse 26. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. I had a hard time knowing where to stop in this passage because it's all so good. When I remember that this is a temporary home that will fade away, but later God will take me to a glory not worth comparing to this earth, and that on top of all that, the Holy Spirit is praying for us with emotions too powerful to put into words, it helps me to view my trials 
as a chance to act with worship and trust. God's faithfulness to his people and thoughtfulness for us is in hum- unmatched in human experiences. Incidentally, I wonder why the Spirit is in such agony that he groans so deeply. I'm sure that it's not about he's asking God for a good job or a good house for us, even though those can be good things that God provides for us. If I were to guess, I think it would have something to do with agonizing over the weight of our faithfulness to God, because that's something worth agonizing over. Maybe there are many other issues that the Spirit agonizes for that are similarly weighty, but there are too many stories of people who fall away from God, both famous people and people that each of us know personally. I think that it is worth agonizing over a brother or sister who is showing signs of turning from the faith. But despite the fickleness of God, of, sorry, of mankind, God is unchanging. Um, Isaiah 40, verse 6 through 8, and mainly verse 8, instructs us on this. We can turn there. Isaiah 40. starting in verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. That's one of those verses that puts me firmly in my place while also encouraging me. My lifespan is incomparable to God's eternality. And for all that, he remains the same. I know people who change their personality on almost a daily basis. It's not my favorite attribute. But God is unchanging. And by this, I have confidence that he will keep his promises. Moving to point four in your outline. The challenges and adoption of orphan care. Most Christians, when they hear that a family has adopted, think something along the lines of, that's great. Kids need a family, and so it's good that a family I know has adopted. However, there's so much more to it than this, and the difficulties can easily be forgotten in the excitement. I frequently say that you can prepare for something as much as you want, uh, especially if it's an upcoming challenge. You can prepare for it as much as you want, but it can still surprise you when it happens. Adoption is hard, and sometimes it's very hard. In fact, without without Christ, it is frequently crushing to the family that adopted. And I hear stories of spouses that split up as a result of an adoption that aren't Christians. I hear stories about adopted kids who run away from their their family and act like nothing has happened when they see their family again, or who are so insensitive or guided by baser passions that I can't even describe it in this setting. It's easy to think that these are isolated incidents because they are so outside the course of normal life that we think that they are exceptions to the rule. But when you hear story after story or go to adoption support groups where every single parent is working through some kind of hardship, you realize it's the rule not the exception. 
If you're considering adoption or foster care, I'd encourage you to count the cost. If you desire to adopt solely in order to grow your family, although this isn't a bad desire, think very carefully about your motives before you proceed. Orphan care is about giving children a home and advocating for their needs, not ultimately about your dreams and desires. Adoption adds various layers of complexity and challenge to everyday life and parenting. Children who undergo trauma can be affected by it long-term if it is not addressed. If an infant or young child does not have a secure, healthy, emotional bond with his or her primary caretakers, and usually care uh, parental figures, they often fail to meet normal developmental milestones that enable children to learn how to trust and interact with others in a healthy way. They may also develop something called reactive attachment disorder. The manifestations of this are that they become emotionally stunted to such an extent that they struggle to form meaningful connections with other people. And combined with their own sinful hearts, they may tend to view relationships as a source for survival and man manipulation versus people who have an image of God. And they will push against love or deep relationships. This could mean that you devote months or even years to a relationship with them, and they don't fully understand your love or even push against it in extreme ways. They're also prone to try to build relationships with random strangers at the same time they're shunning their adoptive parents. Other issues are also common. If a child hasn't been able to trust their biological parents, they will have a hard time trusting an adoptive parent or foster parent, even if the adoptive or foster parent shows themselves to be trustworthy. And if the child hasn't learned how to respect other authority figures, they will have a hard time respecting the parents as the authorities in their lives. Many of you might also assume that if a child is adopted in infancy, that they will be spared trials, but sadly, this is not the case. Many children carry the lifelong consequences of poor decisions their birth mothers made while they were in utero, which can lead to developmental delays, learning delays, sensory problems, etc. Even when the baby is delivered after a healthy pregnancy and come to, comes to live with an adopted family, there can be problems. The child has undergone the loss of their parents, and this will be something they have to work through at some point in their lives. I mention these things because the process of raising adopted kids can be so hard that you'll only make it if you're fully reliant on God. It's a process that breaks you down, presses you into a reliance on God, and takes away a lot of false, false notions about security, control, and authority. It brings out our weakness so that God's glory can shine through. Because of this, your motivation should be to be more Christ-like and follow him in obedience, or the suffering won't be worth it. I've thought about Paul many times when I feel weak, and what God taught him in his weakness. So if you'd all turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7 and going to verse 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, 
to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If it's okay for the Apostle Paul to feel weak sometimes, it's also okay for us to be weak sometimes. It gives God a platform for his glory to shine um, when people look at us and say, how can someone with their limitations do something so difficult? In terms of our own experience, I've had to struggle with relational issues with our kids. It's hard to invest so much time and energy into relationship, and as soon as I get busy with work, the relationship seems to revert back to complete aloofness and a lack of care. And it's hard to feel used by another person as a means to an end and frequently a selfish end. It's hard to see your family being hurt by other members of your family and for the perpetrators either not caring or not seeming to care. In addition, there are times when several members of, of our family go to bed at night wondering if they'll be killed in their sleep. Now, usually this is the result of being constantly insulted, disrespected, or seeing the anger of other people in the house. For other members of the family, it comes from a deep sense of insecurity that takes a long time to change. Some trials are too hard for people to handle alone, and orphan care can be one of those. The grief and feelings of loss, both for your children and for yourself, are a real trial in adoption. But those kinds of trials make the fellowship that believers have with God all the sweeter. When you know something is too hard for you, but God brings you through it, your faith grows, and your eyes are open to God's working and power. He proves himself to be worth our greatest trust in these trials. They also help us to focus on the temporal nature of the world compared to the riches and glory and the eternality of heaven. I'm reminded of Psalm 23, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's more to the life of our souls than just this life on earth. God will make all things new and wipe away every tear. Holding fast to these truths in severe trials can bring you more blessings and hope than living a safe life. Hope is a, is a writer. She blogs a lot, and um, she's written about our adoption, so I'm going to quote her on something that she said about adoption and the necessity of trusting God. I'm doing this because my life depends on God's promise of redemption. And if those promises hold true, then I have to do this work. I'm throwing myself on the promises of God's redemption for my life, for my kids. Our identity is found in Christ in the midst of trials such as these. And remember, in, in the, the goal of all, the, all this and throughout the trials, the goal is faithfulness. I'm going to quote hope, hope again because um, it's relevant. Brokenness is not all there is. We know from God's word it will not consume us. For in the vast darkness and hopelessness of this age, redemption has already sparked a flame that is ever-growing, shining, 
until the darkness will be consumed with light. He will make all things new. Press into the pain, and we see the stark backdrop of God's mercy and kindness. Now, all this talk about trials and challenges with adoption is not to discourage people from adopting. Rather, it's to give you an understanding of adoption so that you can have a better idea of how to support the cause in whatever capacity God has called you to. Moving on to point number five in your outline. Our call to adopt and what we've worked through to make the decision. I want to acknowledge here that no two adoption stories are the same. Each one has different highs and lows, joys and sorrows. What I have experience with is our own story, but each story is different. Many people have asked me about my motivation in pursuing adoption. After I tell them, I think that they leave knowing little more about adoption than when we started. Since one of the secondary goals that Hope and I had when we started on the adoption journey was to spread a passion for adoption in Christian circles, I'd like to explain more about our adoption experience and um, kind of transition us into thinking of ways that, or ways and thoughts that we can be involved in orphan care. For as long as I can remember being a Christian, God has put it on my heart to care for those who are hurting. I knew that orphans were hurting, but I really developed a passion for adoption when I heard a sermon by C.J. Mahaney on Galatians 4, 1 through 7. So if y'all want to turn to Galatians 4. Verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. I remember being filled with gratefulness and awe as I heard about the fact that we were adopted not merely into God's family as sons and daughters, although that would be a magnificent gift, but we are also raised to the status of heirs, which means that we share in God's inheritance of the riches of his presence and goodness. This had a profound impact for me when I was about 19, and I started planning to adopt when I got older. When Hope and I started having kids, one of our first goals was to build a stable family environment with our kids. After a couple difficult pregnancies and risky births, we started thinking towards adoption as the next way to expand our family. We initially planned on adopting a baby from the U.S., and uh, boy, did God have different plans. <laughs> my, wa- my wife talked about this in a blog post, which I thought was articulate, and I'll quote it here. When we first began this process, I never imagined we would end up adopting out-of-birth order. Uh, as a side note, for those of you that don't know, our two oldest kids are our, our adopted kids. I didn't even imagine it would be to have two kids at once. 
There were so many unknowns we faced at the beginning, like a series of doors needing to be opened or explored through, through prayer and faith. We really had no idea where each door would open, but we opened, sought counsel, and prayed through them all. We first researched and prayed over domestic infant adoption and foster to adopt, mostly infants, before landing on international adoption. We began with an age range of six and under for one child from Colombia. Then through another series of circumstances, where we even put our process on hold for a while, we switched to siblings, eight and under in Costa Rica. We ended our process with a final age range of 11 and under for two kids. And when we adopted, um, our, our kids were 10 and 7. If your head was spinning because of that leap from one adoption spectrum to the other, just imagine what our, my heart, head did. It was completely opposite of what I had imagined. It didn't happen quickly, or maybe it did for some people who are watching. There are many stories that God led us through, but truth is, each door was difficult both to walk through and to say no to. It's funny how life works like that. The, await, the weight and amount of decisions and emotions to be thought through in an adoption are heavy and complex. When I focused on all the unknowns and trials ahead, I crumbled. You have to fight with your ideas of comfort, calling, normal families, what are they really, and misconceptions you didn't know you had. You have to stare fear in the face and then dig deep into the truth, even if it hurts. One of our constant prayers during this process was that God would give us the courage to say yes and go forward, or the courage to say no and step through another door. Both options were hard and sometimes excruciating. Now here we are on the other side. I'm thankful God gave the grace for each step through each door that led to where we are now. I'm thankful for the wrestling and the process that grew us. It is more beautiful and totally different than I imagined. Easy? No. Stretching? Definitely. But through every decision and step of faith, God has grown our capacity and provides what we need. Our family fits so naturally to us compared to the adjustments I was prepared for. Grace upon grace, end quote. Hope wrote this while we were still in Costa Rica, and although things have changed a lot since then, God is faithful to us. I'm just about out of time, but I'd like to use uh, the next minute or so to preview next week. I'll be teaching next Sunday as well on, on adoption. I'm going to get a little bit more practical next week. So one of the first, or one of the things that I'll address is evaluating your current capacity and some of the things that we worked through um, to, get, to answer that question. I'll go through some provi profiles of children in need of adoption. I'll go through barriers and doubts towards adoption and orphan care. I'll talk about ways to support the cause of adoption and orphan care. And um, I'll also go through some resources um, to point you to that you can look up as well as some encouragement and other quotes. Um, so that's it for today. Um, let's pray, and then if we could do some announcements. Lord, thank you for, um, for your word and for your, your promises to us and your faithfulness. I pray that you would um, help us to be faithful in 
whatever you've called us to do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.